Have you discovered a few of your blind spots? That was a question. Yes or no? I don't care. I don't know. Um, All right. We're going to talk about some more today. But give me a minute to back into this. Maybe today sometime you can go to lunch with your family or a friend. You can call on the phone and discuss this sentence. I'm going to throw out a sentence. I'm going to ask you to discuss it. Okay, not during church, but I'm going to ask you to discuss it. Your success in life is determined largely by how well you manage tensions. Now, I'll say that again. I'm not talking about tension. I'm talking about tensions in your life. Your success in life will be determined by how well you learn to manage the tensions You and I always have tensions in our life. For example, we all have time. We all have time tensions. We all have so much time for work, so much time for family, so much time for play, so much time for education. Everybody in the room is managing time, and time is a tension. Everyone in the room is managing finances. It was John Wesley, an old guy who rode a horse from church to church years ago. And John Wesley said everybody should make as much as they can, they should save as much as they can, and they should give as much as they can. I first read that when I was 20 years old, and I went, huh? That's tensions, managing tensions. In church world, we're getting ready to go to three services. You talk about managing tensions. We've got 56,000 square feet. We manage facility tensions. We manage children tensions, middle school tensions, production tensions. Let me give you another couple of examples. Uh, what if the production team wants to have a longer service and the children's department wants to have a shorter service? That's called managing the tensions. One is not right. One is not wrong. You have to learn to manage that. I was in an elders meeting a couple years ago. At the end of the year, we had a few few more resources left over. One elder was very strong in his opinion about wanting to pay down some of our debt. Another elder was very strong in his opinion about wanting to give the money away to missions. Who was right? They're both right. Neither one of them are wrong. It's called managing the tensions. And so today and next Sunday, I want to talk about two of the greatest tensions in your life. And these are subtle. And the Holy Spirit's going to have to go ding, 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 ding and speak to you and help you to relate to this. Next week, we're going to talk about the blind spots within family. Blind spots within, you know, raising kids. Blind spots in parenting. We're going to talk about family blind spots next week. But today, I want to talk about the blind spots within work. Okay? You have any blind spots at work? Does everybody around you have blind spots at work? You can see their blind spots. I want to talk about blind spots at work today. And here's how this works. For instance, if you spend all your time at work and you're like Steve Jobs, and you work, and you work, and you work, and you work, eventually, you're going to lose your family, right? But if you spend all your time at home, and spend all your time with your family, or you spend all your time at Legoland, like Tom does, uh, eventually, Tom's going to lose his job. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And so the point is, you have to manage that tension. You spend all your time at work, you're going to lose all your time at work, you're going to lose your home. You spend all your time at home, eventually they're going to say, get out of the house, we like to eat, and go to work, right? So today, I want to show you how Moses did not know how to manage that tension. Moses did not do a good job with this. 
And I'd like to tell you the story ends where Moses, you know, has an epiphany, but it's actually his father-in-law who comes into the scene and helps Moses with work. So we're going to have a test today. I've got about 13 questions today. We've got five steps for freedom. So we've got a lot to look at. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. And Exodus chapter 18... We're going to plunge into this story of Moses, and then we're going to kind of come up to the surface and figure out how we can maybe have some more steps to freedom. But do you and do I potentially have some blind spots when it comes to this area of work? And the answer is, yeah, we we probably do. So here's Exodus chapter 18, and let's start with verse 1. Now Jethro, now isn't that a great name? Anybody in here named Jethro? Anybody, anybody want to name their third kid Jethro or anything like that? You know, after the Beverly Hillbillies, this name went away, didn't it? I mean, we just, we just can't get there. Watch this. So Jethro is, um, he's the priest of Midian, and he's the father-in-law of Moses, which is really a great story. A lot's packed into this one verse. He heard of everything God had done for Moses. Now, the Midianites are not Israelites. The Midianites were not related to the Israelites, but here's a priest of Midian who is going to become a God follower. It's a great story. It's a whole sermon all in itself that God didn't just relate to some people in Israel. Israel was not his uh, pet. They were his pattern. This is a cool story. Anyway, this guy, Jethro, he hears of everything God had done for Moses, for his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, it's another great name. Women, any of you women's name, Zipporah, in the room? It's a great name. Anyway, this is Moses' wife. Say Zipporah. Say Jethro. All right, so Moses had sent his wife, Zipporah, away. Now, why did he send her away? We're going to find out very quickly that Moses does not balance this tension between family and work very well. He sends his wife away. Why? Why does he send his family away? Is it because he thinks they don't need to be around him? Is it because he thinks he has a big, important job? Is it because the the wife and kids are in the way? We don't know. But in a few minutes, we're going to find out he didn't balance the tension very, very well. So Moses sent his wife Zipporah and his father-in-law Jethro received her. This is kind of weird why they broke up the verse. And her two sons. One son was named Gershom. Anybody named Gershom in the room? Okay, and this means I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Next verse. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So we got some drama going on. We got Moses, we got Jethro, we got Zipporah, we got two sons, and Moses sends them away. He's come through the Red Sea. He's doing work out there. He's building up a great nation. They're wandering in the the desert, but he's not with his family. His family's not with him. They're not hanging with him. All right, verse 5. Jethro, that's just a funny word to say, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he camped near the mountain of God. Verse 6. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming. Now, why did he send word? How did he do it? Did he tweet him? Did he email him? He probably sent an envoy. An envoy of people went in front of him and said, I'm coming. I don't know about you, but I don't like people just showing up at my doorstep. Do you? I mean, I'm okay during the day, but I don't want relatives coming from out of town saying we're here for like three months. 
Is anybody like that in the room? I mean, you and I live in Florida. Have you noticed how everybody wants to come visit us in Florida? I mean, people I haven't seen in 35 years call me up. Do you remember me? No. Well, good. We're coming to visit you for about three weeks in Florida. So anyway, he's got all these people getting ready to come to him. I'm coming to you with your wife and your two sons. This is kind of weird. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. I mean, Moses sent them away, but Jethro's bringing them back. Why? Moses said to himself, maybe I can't do this. Let me get the wife and kids out of here. But Jethro's bringing the family back. Moses is working hard. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. This is kind of cool. These tents were cool. These tents were made out of goat hair and out of camel hair. They had animal skins on the floor, and these tents were huge. Literally, Moses' tent could have been about half the size of this room. And there were curtains that divided up into different rooms. These were not small eight by tens that you guys go to a little park with. These were massive tents that they stayed in for, for months. Moses goes out, meets him, they greet each other, and he goes into the tent. Verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way. Now, what what is Moses doing? Moses is saying to his father-in-law, Jethro, I know you're a priest of Midian, and I know the Midianites have a lot of different gods. The Midianites worship a lot of different people. But I, I want you to know there is one true God. There is one true God in Israel. And I want you to know what he did for Israel. He rescued us. He's provided water for us. He's provided manna for us. He's he's provided protection for, for us. I want you to know what God did to Pharaoh. Man, you wouldn't believe it. We're going through the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army's coming behind us, and all of a sudden, God just closed that wall of water, and he just wiped them out. And, And Moses is telling Jethro, this is what the Lord has done. This is how the Lord has worked. This is how the Lord has has intervened in our lives. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they'd been along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, he said, praise be the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. This is, a, this is an epiphany for Jethro. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And a burnt offering is they take some animal and they, they slaughter it, slaughter the blood, they present it before the Lord, and then they eat it. They have a sacrificial meal where they all have a, have a, have a joyous time together. So Moses, the father-in-law, burnt offering, other sacrifices, and Aaron, the, the brother of Moses, Aaron, came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Things are going good. All is going good now. For some reason, Moses sends his family away. And for some reason, Jethro brings them back. They meet. They're in the tent. They're having a kumbaya moment. There's praying. They're sacrificing. And now the music changes. 
Here's where the violins begin to play just a little louder. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. Verse 14. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, basically he said, what in the world is going on here? What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all the people stand around you from morning till evening? You get the point? You see, Jethro sees a blind spot. Jethro sees how hard Moses is working. And Jethro sees that Moses is not doing what he should be doing. He's spending all his time as a judge. Now, I'm going to make this up. I don't know exactly what happened, but it's big cases and little cases. It's all kinds of disputes that are going on among the people. Hey, you know what? They put their tent on our little piece of turf over here. Their donkey came over to our area and ate some of our food, and they're not willing to pay us back. Can you imagine the disputes that are going on with two or three million people out in the wilderness? Holy smoke. And and Moses has set himself up as the judge and all day long. Imagine the lines of people. They're lining up just to ask him for advice. And and Jethro's going, what is he doing? I mean, he sent his wife and his sons away. He should be leading the people. He should be a leader among the people. But instead, he's so involved in the technical work, he can't see the forest for the trees. And so Jethro asked, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone? I mean, Moses, you should be recruiting Moses, you should be teaching the people. Moses, you should have the big picture. Moses, why are you doing all this petty stuff? This isn't good. Why do you alone sit as judge while all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Verse 15. Next verse. Moses answered, well, because the people come to me. What's he saying? Because there's lots of work. There's lots of needs. And I'm important. I'm Moses, after all, for goodness sakes. The people need me. And I'm working 14 hours a day trying to keep everybody happy. I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Verse 16. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, what did Moses' father-in-law say basically to him? It's a blind spot. You can't see what you're doing. You're working so long and so hard and so fast and so furious. Do you not realize that you're basically driving your family away from you? And you're spending all this time doing something that you really shouldn't be doing in the first place. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. Kind of a subtle way, isn't it? You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle this alone. And then verse 19, he says this. Listen now, listen to me, and I will give you some advice. Now, if you're in business, if you're a leader, you need to read the rest of chapter 18. It's not the point of what he tells him to do that I want us to walk away with today. You see, he gives him some good strategy. He tells him how to recruit. He tells him how to delegate. He tells him how to run his business, basically. That's not the point this morning. 
The point this morning is not the rest of 18. The point this morning is Moses had a blind spot. And there was somebody close enough to Moses that could help Moses do better with work. And Moses had such a great relationship with him and was humble enough that Moses listened. You see, I bet there are people around you who've been whispering to you for years about some of your work blind spots. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. The first time somebody tells me something like that, I don't hear it. I don't listen to it. I'll come up with some epiphany at home, and Danita will say, I've been telling you that for five years. I'm a quick study at home, trust me. And I bet it's the same way with work with all of us in this room. Listen now, I want to give you some advice. You have a blind spot, Moses. I was in Memphis as a pastor for 16 years, and I got to know Jim really well. Jim was a regional manager for the Burlington Coat Factory. Had a son and two beautiful daughters. Jim was married to the Burlington Coat Factory. Even on holidays, Jim had the keys and would go from store to store. It could be Christmas Eve. It could be Christmas morning. It could be New Year's Day. Jim got the keys to Burlington Coat Factory. He would do all kinds of paperwork. He, would, he lived at these four stores that he managed. He had a son that could pitch. I mean, the son was a great pitcher. Even in high school, the boy was throwing mid-80, 85-mile-an-hour fastballs, would win several. Jim missed all the games. Now, all of us are going to miss some games, and all of us are going to miss some of our kids' activities. Jim wasn't there. The daughters were involved in music. They had recitals, music recitals. He... I said to him, Jim, you're, you're missing it, bro. You're missing it. You, you, you got, I didn't have the words tension to manage then, but you got to spend some time with your family. And every one of us in this room, this is a tension that we have to manage. We have to work. We have to spend time with family. Everybody has these tensions to manage. Jim, about the year 23, got fired from the Burlington Coat Factory. It was all he had. He had nothing else in his life. And it was just a miracle he didn't commit suicide. We got him counseling. We got him help. We walked him through the next six months. He got another job, and guess what? He got married right back to that second job. Just didn't learn learn his lesson. So I want to give us a test this morning. And I want to see if this is possibly a blind spot in your life. Now, again, I want to be very careful about this because, see, we're only talking about half the bridge today. We're only talking about working too much. The Bible talks a lot about laziness. The Bible talks a lot about slothfulness. The Bible talks great, a great deal about, Paul says, if you don't work, baby, you don't get to eat. I like to eat, don't you? So there is a v- great value. I'm talking today about the other side of this. I'm talking about being intoxicated with work. I'm talking about where work has become your identity. So let's take this test um, this morning, and let's see how well we do with this. Here we go. Test number one. I feel guilty if I'm not accomplishing something. Fess up. How many of you fess up to that? Okay, number two. I got real quiet in the room. Number two. While driving, I have a need to call somebody to take care of business. How many, how many struggle with that? You're in the car. You can't even enjoy the moments in the car. 
A few years ago, I walked into the bathroom, and a friend of mine, he's on the phone at the urinal. I said, what, dude, this is way over the top. Way, way, way over the top. I started to put that one down. I thought, no, I'm going to put that in print. Number three, if I am honest, I am intoxicated by work. Number four, I can work to the detriment of my family. Number, number five, my family would say they get the leftovers. Ouch. Work has affected my health. I have a need to be working all the time. I daydream often about the next job level. I work harder because I am afraid of being fired. Number 10, I feel empty when a career objective has been achieved. Number 11, I take on extra work because I want it done my way. How many of you like that? How many of you do it your own way? You don't want anybody else doing it? You want it done your way? All right, I understand that. It's sick, but I understand that. Verse 12, I prefer to work without getting input or assistance. That's a blind spot. If nobody can speak into you about your work, nobody can correct you or give you 2% course corrections or make suggestions, this is, this is a blind spot. I prefer to work without getting persistent. Number 13, I get impatient with people who have other priorities besides work. Uh, this friend of mine from our church uh, gave me this story this past week, and I have permission to tell um, this story. He, uh, he and his family were in a small Midwestern community. They were, they were elder. He was an elder at the church. He was a great leader. They were a model Christian family. And all of a sudden, he got a job offer. The job offer would require travel. It would require a move. And uh, it was $25,000 immediate salary increase with stock options. And here he is, a spiritual leader, a great spiritual leader in a local church. He and his wife, great Christian family, great Christian girls. And he said, to be honest with you, he said, I never even prayed about it. He said, I was so excited about 25K and the stock options that was going to make me rich. He said, I'll be honest with you, Kurt. I didn't even ask God if that was God's will for my life. He said, the next five years, he said, I became a million-miler flyer on Delta. My passport was stamped with Southeast Asia and Asian countries. He said, I made a ton of money in those five years. At the end of the five years, he said, I I went through a terrible divorce, and my 401K was being drained to pay child support. The next four years of my life, I went through a spiritual wilderness that I, I, I hope nobody goes through. It was void of God, godliness, character. And he said, but those verses, those scripture verses that I had memorized as an elder and as a leader, as a teacher within my church, they were in my mind. And he said, after about four years, he said, they came to, into my heart. They found their way from here, he said, to here. And I knew that my Lord Jesus loved me. And he confessed and he repented and he's remarried. And he's one of our, our friends and one of our small group leaders of our church uh, to, to this day. But he would tell you, he would tell you about his blind spot and the dangers. You see, that's the problem with work-related blind spots. They can leave you very isolated. They can leave you very alone. And the price to pay, as your pastor, I love you. And I think you should work hard. I think the Bible has a great work ethic. Again, I think the Bible teaches slothfulness is a sin. That's another sermon for another day. 
But in our culture today, this is a tension that you and I have got to learn to manage. If I spend all my time with my family, I'm going to lose my job. If I spend all my time on my job, I'm going to lose my wife and my son and my daughters. And I understand that tension that you and I, we live in this tension. Probably not a problem to be solved. It's more a tension that has to be managed. So I want to give us five steps to freedom. I think these five steps, they're in your bulletin. Do you want to write in the the answers? I think these five steps will help us. Again, they don't resolve it. They don't resolve it, but they help us with the tension because you're always going to be managing these two tensions. All right, step number one is we we, um, embrace. We embrace an eternal perspective. I I couldn't get Jim, the Burlington Coat Factory guy, to ever think about eternal life. Yeah, he was a Christian. Yeah, he got baptized. Yeah, he was at church occasionally. But but I never could get him to think eternally. And and, and this is what is so important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter is about the next life. The whole chapter is about the very next life that you and I are going to embrace. It talks about, you know, our bodies sown this way, but it's raised this way. It, 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 we die, but we raise to a new life. First Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about an eternal perspective. Now imagine how our lives would be like if every day we could keep an eternal perspective in mind. We're going to be here 70, 80, 90 years, and we're going to check out. And for the next 500 billion years, we're going to be in heaven. That's just the pregame warm-up. So here's what he says at the end of all that chapter, talking about the next life. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord, that's the key word, your labor in the Lord. Some of you have great work. Some of you do a great work, but I got to ask you the question, how are you laboring for the Lord? Because what Paul is saying is only your work in Christ will last. Now, you still got to go to work tomorrow. You still got to go to work. You still got to go to school, all right? Young people, sorry, you still got to go to school this week. But, it, 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 but, but what he's saying is gain an eternal perspective. Why? Because you know, and we all do know this, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So if I were you, how do you manage this tension between family and work? How do I manage the tension between recreation and all the things I want to do? I would keep an eternal perspective because it's not in vain. Does that make sense? Okay, number two. Number two is I would adopt worship as a way of life. We, We are convinced at our church that God has wired you and I to worship. And it's not just one hour on Sunday morning. It's worship as a way of life. Uh, I'm going to let us read Psalm 139, some verses. I've got several verses. Watch these on the screen with me. Let's read these together. I don't want you to drop off. Stay with me. Okay, ready? You've already dropped off. Are you ready? All right, let's read these verses together. Here we go. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the seed, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me. What is he saying? For you created me. I'll read this. Ready? For you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are too wonderful for me. I know that full well. Why would we not adopt our, our worship as a way of life? When we get up, we praise the Lord. When we go to bed, we give him thanks for the day. All day long, we're interceding and asking God to do great things in our life. All right? So worship becomes a way of life for us. What, what does that do for you with this blind spot? It puts things in perspective. When worship is a way of life, you begin to see your work and your family differently. When you begin to embrace an eternal perspective, you begin to view work and your family differently. All right, number three. What's the, what's the number three? Recruit. Is that it? Yep. Recruit a network that works for you. I think this is really important. I, I've got some wonderful men in my life. And these men are giving me advice. They're giving me guidance. Some give me spiritual guidance. Some give me business guidance. Some give me family guidance. Some give me church guidance. Recruit a network that works for you. Look at Acts chapter 2 with Peter. Look at this. This is kind of weird, but I want you to show. Here's Peter. He's gone from denying Christ. He's gone from fleeing. He's gone from running. And now on the day of Pentecost, he's going to tell the very people who crucified Jesus, who he was running from, he's getting ready to tell them that they crucified Christ. And it says, then Peter stood up with the 11. He's got 11 guys around him. He's recruited a network that works for him. All right. Number four. What's number four? contribute to lasting work. If you'll notice, we've talked about worship last week. Jonathan did. We talked about connecting, connect groups last week. And now contribute. Contribute to lasting work. Listen to this verse out of John. John 6, 27. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils. Do you feel that way at work sometimes? I mean, do some of you feel like your work is just a dead end? But see, your work is providing money for your family. And your work is providing money for other people. I mean, there's a lot of good things that happen because of your work. But Jesus is saying, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And what he's saying is, is you lean into God, God's going to give you fulfilling eternal perspective work that you can accomplish. Don't work for food that spoils. How silly to marry the Burlington Coat Factory. How how silly to miss your son's baseball games. How ridiculous to miss your daughter's piano recitals. And he's saying, don't don't do everything that, that is missing the main things. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Your family is so important. Your church is so important, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Number five, he talks about pursuing an integrated lifestyle. And the reason I got this one as number five is is this is, again, managing those tensions in your life. I made a statement earlier that the degree to which you will be successful in life is the degree to which you will be able to manage the tensions. 
Every mother in this room manages tensions. Every father in this room manages tensions. Everybody in this room that goes to work and has a family, everybody in this room, you are managing tensions. And an integrated lifestyle is, is that you're not off balance. You know how the washing machine, you put too many towels in the washing machine and it gets off balance and starts jumping across the floor? You ever had that happen before? It'll freak you out. You think the Antichrist is in your laundry room right there. <laughs> and what, what Paul is saying here is, is, is here's an integrated lifestyle. Listen to First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a great verse. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Now here's the integration. Here's the integration. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, that's you. See, this is tension. You have a spirit, you have a soul, you have a body. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's integration. You're all three. You have a spirit, you have a soul, and you have a body. And you get either one of those out of, out of whack, and your life is cattywampus, and you're like the washing machine. You're just bouncing all, all over the floor and all over the place. And so Moses in this story, it ends well. The story ends well because Jethro gave him advice. Jethro pointed out a blind spot, and it ends well because Moses was humble enough the Bible says he's the most humble man of all. He was humble enough to listen. So here's your action step for the week. Maybe not today, because today I want you to think about the sentence I started with, and that was, your success in life could very possibly be determined by how well you manage the tensions. That's what I want you to talk about today. But in the next seven days before next Sunday, here's what I want you to do. Here's an action step. I'm going to ask you to ask somebody that you're close to, somebody that you trust, somebody that you like. It could be your spouse. It may not be your spouse. It could be your best friend. But I'm going to ask you to take a chance and say to somebody close to you, do you see any work-related blind spots in my life? Now, if you're the person that they ask, and you've been waiting for this for like eight years, Okay, take a deep breath and don't say, well, it's about time. Don't, don't, do not do that. But, but just give them one. Just give them, in your humble opinion, what is one, one, not seven, not three, not two. How many? One. What is one work-related blind spot that you could possibly have in your life? And then Listen. Don't buck up and bow up and be all big and bad. And how could you, you know, well, I got to provide. You know, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I've never done that, of course. It just slipped out of my, my mouth. <laughs> well, I'm responsible. I got a big job. You know, don't, don't. I, I, I read that. I'm sure I've never said that in real life. Gosh, give me a break. But just listen. And then just let God begin to, 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 to clear your path. So you can do a better job with work, and you can do a better job with your family, and you can manage this tension so, so well. The, the place to always begin is to allow God's Spirit to work on you. And I'm not negating the work of the Holy Spirit today in your life. 
In fact, we encourage that around here all the time, is that God's Spirit works in you greater than you could ever dream or imagine. And the way for us to have God's Spirit to work in us is, first of all, for us to become a Christian. Step one is for us to become a Christian. And so if you're, if you're in this journey right now and you're not really sure, well, I don't know if I want to become a Christian or not. I don't know enough yet. You've come to a great church. We're going to give you room to breathe. And we're so glad you're here. And we want you to come back and come back. And if we can help you with this journey, we can help you answer some questions about Christ and who he is and how all these things kind of tie together, we'll be glad to do that. But maybe some of you in the room, you're ready to become a Christian. Maybe some of you in the room, you're ready to give your life to Christ. Maybe some of you are ready to step over and you're thinking, gosh, how do I do this? Like, am I going to be alone? Well, I want to show you our beach baptisms from um, June because we're getting ready to have another whole beach baptism August the 25th. And I just want you to see, the reason I want to show it to you is because I want you to see that we're not alone You become a Christian, we're here with you. You go get baptized, we're here with you. We do this together as a family and as a team. And so if you'd like to give give your life to Christ, if you've never been baptized by immersion, I strongly recommend that as your next step. Because Christian baptism is an outward sign of an inward commitment. Inwardly, I'm going to live for Jesus. And outwardly, you participate in the greatest event in all of history which was his death, his burial, his resurrection. Yesterday, um, we don't have the kids this weekend, and they're all together somewhere else with Ethan on the other coast. So Denise and I, we got in the boat yesterday morning and drove over to, there's about 15 different slips over by the Marina Library and all over there, Library of Clearwater. And so we, we take our stuff. And I actually studied for about three and a half hours under a tent yesterday, underneath a, an umbrella. And so we're there, and um, she took a long walk by herself because we had wallets and cell phones and stuff and didn't want to just leave them. And then and it was my turn. And so I, I, I walked down from about, let's say, Pier 60 down toward Carlewell you know, going uh, basically toward uh, the north. And, and, and as I'm walking down, I thought, man, it's hot out here. Guys, this is hot. The sun's just beating down on me, you know, and there's no breeze whatsoever. And I just feel the heat. And I'm just profusely sweating. And I got down to about Carlywell, about two, two miles away, and I turn around. And that breeze is just blowing on me. And I, I, now I've got two miles with the cool breeze blowing. I'm already sweating profusely. But now and I thought to myself, that's kind of how some of us do life. We walk, you know, and the sun's just beating us down, just beating us down, beating us down. And all we got to do is turn around. That's the word repent. All we got to do is turn around. And we turn around and we begin to walk with God. And God's presence and God's pleasure begins to just fall all over us. And I had the best two-mile prayer time and walk all the way back to, to our, our couple of chairs. See, that's what God wants to do in your life. You repent, you change your mind, you change your behavior, you confess your sins, I, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You become baptized into Him. I identify with the greatest event in all of history, which was the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. He will flood to your presence. His spirit will come into your life. And so that's an action step for some of you today. I want you to leave this service 
go to the connect desk. If you've not been immersed, I want you to sign up today. And we'll baptize you at 6 p.m. on August 25th. And there will be hundreds of us out there with you. You will not be alone. We do this together as a team, as a family. So you've got three action steps today. Number one, I want you to think about the tensions. How do you manage the tensions in your life? Number two, I want you to have the courage to ask somebody close to you, do I have any blind spots when it comes to work? And number three, if you've not been baptized by immersion, I want to ask you to highly consider this, to go out to the Connect Desk and sign up today. We are so glad you're here. And maybe this is your first time at church in a while, and you're going, man, I don't know about being baptized. I'm not even sure about coming back next week. I'm freaked out about all this. Just come back. Just come back. So maybe today you want to give your life to Christ. Come down to one of our prayer partners. Let them pray with you. Maybe there's been a family crisis. Maybe work is not going well, and you need somebody to pray with you about your work and your vocation. Come down, and our prayer partners will love on you and pray for you and encourage you. Also, we've got groups signed up today, kiosk in the corner. Uh, Let's get connected. Let's stay connected. And the whole church is going to do this together with the Gospel of John. I'm going to preach on the Gospel of John, and the Connect groups are going to have studies in the Gospel of John. We'll do this all together for about eight weeks. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we adore you. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.